We mentioned this passage here in the book of 2 Timothy about the firm foundation of God a week or two ago. And I thought, well, I'm going to talk about that a little bit more. It's been something that's been on my mind. I, I've come to really, to, I've come to really love this passage. Really all the way down through the end of the chapter, which we're not going to talk about that. But I've come to really, really love this, what Paul, what Peter, what Paul, Peter, whoever, what Paul is saying here in this chapter. It, it probably escapes us at first reading as just sounding like some kind of religious talk. But I think it's much more than, and should be much more than that to us. Especially as we live in uncertain times. Uh, uh, we're living in a time when Christians in other places, I know they're not all New Testament Christians, don't make me wrong, but they're considered Christians by the people that are persecuting them are being put in, even in Canada, they're being arrested for being Christians. And, and, and this is going on all over the world. It's, it's incredible. And it's getting worse. It's unthinkable in my lifetime this would happen. But this passage gives us some hope about that. So let's go read it together. And then maybe we can uh, look at the, what some of the things that we can draw out of this passage today that would help us about the firm foundation of God. Now, I'm going to use the word firm foundation. Probably some of the newer versions I'm going to read even use the word solid foundation of God. And we'll talk about that in a second. I think this is the new King James up here. Nevertheless, Paul says, and you got to look at that word nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his and that everyone who names the name of, the, of Christ Depart from iniquity. But in the great house, they're not only vessels of gold and silver, but also wood and clay and some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel of honor, sanctified and useful for the master or fit for the master's use, as the old versions say, prepared for every good work. Now, it might come up a little bit later, but I'll just mention it now about this word solid or firm. I think in the, I don't think the word solid conveys exactly the meaning of the Greek word here. And as you know, I am no Greek scholar. I just play one on TV or in the pulpit. No, I don't. I'm not a Greek scholar. I, I know a little bit of Greek, enough to be dangerous, but I can read what the ones who do know about Greek say. And I can read this text. The word solid just conveys a little bit of a different meaning. And it means, you know, something that's, uh, not porous, this has more the idea in the original of something that's not flexible, something that's not going to give way. And that's why the idea of a firm foundation, I think, probably fits. A solid might work for you, depending on your background and what the word means. But it means a foundation that is not going to give way and sink and shift or crack or bend under your feet. It's something that's solid. This is something that God has put here for us that we can stand on, that we can count on, that's going to be there for us, this foundation of God. Whatever that, We haven't even talked what the foundation is yet, but God said, he says here, this foundation, in spite of what men do, this foundation stands and has certain characteristics, which I think are very important. At least they, they strike me that way in my own heart as to what it means. And he tells us then, as it gets done, but that there's this great house that God has built. Another figure, he goes from the foundation. Now he says, uh, there's a great house built here. And then like in every house, 
There are different vessels. Some are gold and silver. Others are just plain old bowls and pots and Tupperware, you know. Maybe something you got at Goodwill, that kind of thing. There's all kind of pots and vessels in this house. And he says, now, if you... There's some of these are for honor, some are for dishonor. You know, we've got nice, nice dishes. And then back in the back closet, in the back of the, by the bathroom in the hallway, open it up and look in there, and there's a little tray, a little thing, you got. And in there, some of those, those, what's the technical word? Puke trays, puke bowls. You know, the kind you get in the hospital where they bring some, those little beige or pink things that you throw up in when you're sick in the hospital. Of course, being, being me, I save everything, and so I, I've actually brought home, asked the nurses for all the IV tubing, you know, and all the little valves and all the everything they can give me. They, I take all that stuff home, needles, any spare needles in the trash can. I use all this stuff for my animals, chickens, and sometimes the kids, grandkids growing up. You all think I'm kidding. <laughs> but anyway, yes, yeah, so I'm kidding. I, I, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. All, I just made all that up. Anyway, I, I don't, I've never even get put stitches in my kids or done surgery or nothing. Don't ever think that. Anyway. Um, but you got your beautiful chalice in the, in the cabinet, and then you got the thing that you throw up in when you're sick. Both in the same house. Vessels of honor, vessels of dishonor. He says if you want to be a vessel of honor, you've got to cleanse yourself from this dishonor from the wicked things and be an honor to the Lord, a vessel that he can bestow honor on, sanctified and useful, set apart and useful, and put it in a special place in our dining, in a china cabinet because it's a special vessel to it. You want to be that? You want to be prepared for every good work, not the awful work of, of catching vomit, but the good work that can be put on a table in a feast to friends and family, then you you have to sanctify yourself, set set yourself apart. To be fit for the master's use. Now, there's a lot in that, and we might come back to some of that. But, but uh, whenever you can work vomit into a sermon, you're doing a good job. Peter did, you know, dog vomit. He even got dog vomit in there. That's a pretty good preacher, I think. Anyway, <laughs> it gets you set up for lunch coming up here soon. This passage is set in a context. Not just out by itself, but in the context of a warning to these people, and really a context of discouragement to someone like the Apostle Peter, as he, and I'm excuse me, as Paul. Why in the world am I saying Peter for Paul this morning? I have no idea, but just overlook it. Whenever I say Peter, I might use Peter later, but if I, usually when I say Peter, uh, you can just put Paul in there in your head. Why is Paul saying these things? Well, because he's discouraged a little bit about things that have happened and people that he's dealing with. He says, remind them of these things. This is also part of a bigger context. In verse 14, go back up a little bit. Go back up to verse 14, chapter 2, 2 Timothy. Remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord, not to strive about words to no profit to the ruin of the hearers. We can, we can fight about words in a way, not just try to find out what they mean, but but we can pick apart everything everybody says and it'll be of no profit. Instead of getting the point, we can we can harp on how many angels can dance on the head of a pen as the Pharisees did, that kind of thing. And this just ruins the hearers. It gives them no benefit. 
Apparently, people were doing that back then. But he says to, to, to Timothy, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And this word, rightly dividing, it's one word in Greek, it has the word ortho in it, like orthopedic, orthodontics. Ortho means straight in Greek. And it means a straight cut. Someone, someone who can take the word of God and make a straight cut where it needs to be made and separate things out and explain explain what's really there. That's what this word means. It means to explain clearly and plain and make the correct straight cut. Not, not a faltering cut, not a cut that goes off to the side, but one that divides it properly. It might be referring to the fact that you need to divide the Old and the New Testaments. That's how I've heard it applied a lot of my life. But may, maybe. But it basically means somebody who can explain and take apart the Word of God in a proper way. You be that kind of preacher and teacher. Approve to God. You've done the work, the study, the preparation, so that you can explain God's Word in the way that it was written to the people that need to hear it. But he said, in your work, in your thinking about all these, when you do that, you got to understand words. you got to deal with words. And so don't get caught up in useless arguing about words. And don't. But and also, verse 16, shun profane and idle babblings. A lot of the things are just lazy talk that people go through. In churches, in communities, in families, there seem to be always those who engage in just lazy talk they don't think about what they're saying. They don't think about the effects it has on other people. They make comments about people and things that are destructive and damaging. And that's what was going on here. Some of them are even profane. Means they don't even consider that when they talk about other Christians, they're talking about holy things to God. These are God's people that he saved. And so the, the, the babblings and word idle here just means lazy and not thought through, not well thought out. And they are destructive to people. And what they do is they increase unto more ungodliness. They lead you away from God himself and from what he He would have people do. They don't lead you closer to God. And so the conversations we have with people should not be leading them away from Christ, making them more reluctant or less, less able and less willing to serve the Lord and to serve each other. But they should be doing more. And he says, in this message, their message will spread like cancer. These people that do this, Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. So he says here, even are two, he names the names of the people that are doing this, two of them anyway, and he says they're the sort of person that, that's destroying people with their doctrines and their teaching and, and their false teaching, not following the words that God has given us. And he says that they are overthrowing. And the example he gives is they say the resurrection is past already. You know, we got people in our day and time, even among uh, brethren in the churches of Christ, who say that the resurrection has already occurred. It happened in AD 70. They've emphasized AD 70 to an extreme. It's an important event, but they emphasize to the extreme. They say that's when the resurrection occurred in AD 70. Well, that's a false teaching. And it's the same sort of teaching that's going on in this place that ha- takes people's hope away, takes away what really God has really put in front of them. And he says, be careful about this. And so you see the same kind of a warning is given over in the book of Jude by Jude. 
He says, Beloved, I was very diligent to write unto you concerning our common salvation, and I found it necessary to write you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Nobody's receiving, nobody's receiving a revelation today. The word once means once for all time. It's a specific Greek word. It's used only three times in the New Testament, and it means one time for all time. Once. Okay? And that's what he, when he says the word of God was delivered. Those who say Joseph Smith got a new revelation in 18-something or other on the hill of New York, that's wrong. Those who say in 600-something Muhammad got a revelation from God. No, that's wrong. This says that the gospel was delivered one time to the saints. And that's during the New Testament time of the apostles, not later. And people today that say, well, I had a dream and so-and-so told me this. This is not true. I don't believe that because I think you've got to compare it to what the Bible says because that's when the faith was delivered. And he says, these certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for condemnation. Not personally, but this type of person who comes in not openly saying, well, I don't agree with what what the apostles said. I'm going to teach something different. They don't ever do that. They always act like what they're teaching is what the apostles said, or they've been given some new revelation, and they're special. This is how that... So they creep in among the brethren unawares. And they, they've they been marked out. Ungodly men who turned the grace of God into lasciviousness, lewdness. And I, our only God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So there's a lot in there. He's talking about certain kinds of false teachers. But this is the pattern that all, all these false teachers have. It isn't just that they want to raise money and get, get rich off of the poor, unsuspecting brethren, but they also want to take those brethren's wives and daughters, too, along with them, usually, see. This is how it worked then, this is how it works now. Now, this firm foundation of God. The context that we've seen is one where Paul is warning them because there's, there's men who come in, and he, he I think he's an element of discouragement that, that this shouldn't be happening, and yet it is and will continue to happen. He wants them to be warned about it. But he says, nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands. Now, the word nevertheless is one of those, uh, I, a lot of the words of the Bible to me are, the, the important words are the odd words, not the big words that we think of. They're the, the buts and the ifs, in this case, the neverthelesses. That gives you a big clue as to what's really being said here. And what's important, like I mentioned when I talk about marriage in Ephesians chapter 5, and he's talking about how the husband is to be head of the wife as Christ is head of the church. The key word there is as. The headship of the husband is as Christ is head of the church, not just any old way the man wants to be the head. The wife to be in submission to the husband as she is to the Lord. The word, the important word there is as. Not, not the other, not as much the other. It explains what's going on. So here, nevertheless, so, we're all around us, down through time, and of course we know from the Bible, although all men are the same, people have always been the same, we see in the Bible that one generation changes to another. Remember there was a generation that arose that did not know Joseph in Egypt, who began to persecute and enslave the Israelites. Yeah, people are the same. There are probably some people like that before that, but here's a generation now that changes. There's a generation that doesn't know Joseph. They begin to do very wicked things. That something changed. And then we see this generation and that generation. The Bible talks about this. All the, i got a sermon here. I've been working on it for years called Generations. i got to work on that some more. 
Because I think we're the generation that we're seeing in the United States, starting with me and our us baby boomer old hippies. We can start before that. I can find the problems. We'll start with my generation. I'm not just picking on the young people. These young people that are, what do they call them, Gen Xers or younger than that? How much have they really impacted society? Well, maybe a little. They're not in charge yet. Just wait till they get in charge, though. Okay? But it's my generation, the baby boomers, and then the millennials, and now they're in charge. My generation's going the way of the dinosaur. Now the ones in charge are the, what happened? Who's after the baby boomers and the millennials? I don't know who it is, but. Huh? Gen X and the millennial, and the millennial gen. Yeah. Okay. That's a whole different breed of cat than even us old baby, us old baby boomers. Whole different breed of cat. When they do studies on that generation, the results ain't pretty as to what they think and believe and how they act. It ain't pretty at all. Okay. So a whole new generations are rising. Are they worse than baby boomers? I don't know. I'm not God about that. But I'll tell you something. It's a different thing, especially as far as righteousness and the will of the Lord is concerned. Maybe God will pull something good out of some of them. I think he will. But then you go even further on down the line in generations. It doesn't look good in a lot of ways. And we see the fruits of this everywhere we go. That's what all this LGBT stuff is. That's what all the rampant homosexuality and the approval of those things. That, that's what everybody leaving the Lord's all about, all the immorality everywhere. That's what the destruction of families is about. And abort, all of those things is about that. Paul says, nevertheless, you think this isn't going to impact the church of Jesus Christ? Already is impacting him greatly. I'm alarmed at sometimes at what I see young preachers write and say. I'm alarmed at how they think and what they're, where they're coming up with their conclusions. I appreciate them tra- preaching the gospel. And I have my own set of failures. Please believe me, I know that. But, but I'm alarmed because I don't see a commitment to something very basic and un- understanding the word of the Lord. I see a commitment to, to, uh, different critical race theory and all this other kind of stuff. I see a commitment to those things in their teaching and preaching. Political movements. And it's alarming because those movements are not based on the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that's what they're committed to. It's, it, it's What's Paul's response? Nevertheless. Nevertheless. In spite of these men like Pilatus and Hymenaeus subverting the gospel and all those who follow them, nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands. He hasn't changed what he's doing. He built his church. He put it on the foundation of Jesus Christ. That foundation is firm. It will never be moved by men like that, women like that. It will never be moved by political, by politicians of political movements, governments. It will never be moved by immorality and by Hollywood. Nothing will move that because it's the firm foundation of God. That's the thing that we need to see. So we, we need to, li- we, we Christians have got to live with the nevertheless in our head. It's that all or nothing I talked about a couple of weeks ago. And you can look, if you haven't, didn't hear that, it's on the, it's on the internet, I think, on wearejustchristians.com. We've got to live in back of our mind every day, nevertheless, in spite of what I'm seeing and hearing around me and the way people are pushing me, nevertheless, I'm going to do this. 
Is that the way you are? I think most of you are like that. And I love you for that. I think God loves you for that. Having that nevertheless attitude about the world and the influence of the world. Uh, the foundation of God stands. And what is this foundation? Well, I, I think it's, um, I think essentially it becomes the church, uh, and the revealed word is the foundation, as we'll see. But I'm going to read you something here. I didn't put this on here. Is it okay for me to read something? I thought this was good. This is from, I believe Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, but it's a commentary. So he says, among other things, he says, above the door of the temple of Delphi, that's the Greek oracle, there was the Greek word I or thou art. And Pluto wrote a treatise upon that. Above the Mohammedan mosque and malls are covered with the inscriptions, which are ordinarily sentences taken from the Quran. I mean, even on the high priests of the Jews in the Old Testament, Kodesh, Lahova, holiness to the Lord is written, and so forth. And so he says, on these temples built even by the Lord, there's are inscriptions that mean something very solid or foundational. And so he says here that the te- that this this temple has of the Lord has a seal on it. The Lord knows those who are His. That's what's written on the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ, this foundation that we can stand on. The Lord knows those who are His. And he says, correspondingly, in this commentator, I won't read all this, correspondingly, the description has got to be written on our hearts. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. What has to be written on our heart is, I will depart from iniquity. What's written on the foundation temple that I belong to, that I'm standing on, is... The Lord knows those who are His. Those two things go together. And they do not suit the world that we live in at all. Neither one suits the world. We're supposed to depend upon the imaginations and and the uh, inscriptions that men want to supply. I am the science. I am science. We're supposed to depend upon that, you know, as the foundation of our world that we live in. Or whatever else it may be. Or love yourself. You know, this foundation is also shown, I think, in another way, this idea that the foundation, the firm foundation of God stands, and that's the church that he built through Jesus Christ, and that's the revealed word. And by I don't have the word church here capitalized, because it's not capitalized in the Bible that, that way. I don't mean some kind of a institutional structure founded in Rome or something like that. This is the people of God. And he built them with and, and told them to work together, and he considers them a unit a collective unit of his people, even though he judges them individually. We are a collective unit that needs to work together. I think that's something that's failed. That's, I think that's something that's failed in America a little bit because of our individual our emphasis on individuality, which is good, is the idea that in the church is a collective, a group of people that have to stay together and be together and bond together. We can call it, a, we have thoughts more like a family that we have to be in. We need to emphasize that more, but that's another subject. But, but notice what Paul says in Ephesians. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the house and members of the household of God. There's that house having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets 
Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So he elaborates a little bit more on the metaphor. It's a different metaphor, but here's the cornerstone upon which the whole house is founded. That's Jesus Christ. And the apostles and prophets built this foundation that you stand on. And you are members of this household. You are functioning parts of this household, this structure that's been built. And so that's the meaning of this idea of the household of God. And it's all put held together by the faithfulness of God himself. That's what he means. The Lord knows those who are his. We get confused sometimes. We should We should be. There were people in Paul's day, he had to point a few of them out, but he couldn't point out all of them. They were, because there were men coming in, creeping in, privily it says, that were trying to subvert the gospel. He even says, another place in 2 Corinthians, that even the angels of Satan appeared, the ministers of Satan appeared to be ministers of light. It can be confusing. So we do the best we can to sort out the truth from error, the wicked from the good, and we try to follow that which is good, but we're probably going to make mistakes along the way, but the Lord knows the right ones. So yes, as we saw about the wheat and the tares, this is probably where this came up, the wheat and the tares last week. Christ says, let the tares stay in the field. The church will be full of wheat, full of tares, can be have a lot of tares in it, but if I rip them all out, I'll rip everybody else out with them. Destruction. I've seen this happen in churches. You got a bad person who is either immoral or sowing wicked things in the church. And when the elders of the preacher try to confront that person, try to correct that problem, a bunch of other people who are perfectly healthy get mad and leave. Seen, seen it before. Because they, they don't like you're picking on their friend or they think you're being unfair. Most of the time, this is frustrating to elders and preachers. Here's what they say. Well, I agree with you, but I don't like the way it was handled. I don't like the way it was done. Tell me a nice way to stand up and say, you're a false teacher or, or you're an immoral person. Is there a good way to do that that you know of that I'm not aware of? But that's what people want. What they mean is I don't like any, any kind of disruption or any kind of un, unpleasantness. Nobody. Nobody, well, no, I shouldn't say that. Most people don't like unpleasantness. Some people love unpleasantness. They live for it. But most people don't. And I don't know very many preachers and elders who love unpleasantness. Most try to avoid it. Some, I think sometimes here we avoid it too much. To be truthful, the elders here. But the fact is, this has always been the way it's been going to be and the wheat and the tares have to grow together sometimes and I have to admit sometimes I don't know which one's which occasionally you get fooled so Paul leaves them together but God is faithful in this he will separate them out he knows who are his now now Jameson Fawcett and Brown also say this the word of truth inseparably involves God's truthfulness to his word the foundation is primarily the word of truth, including the secondarily God's faithfulness to his promises to his own people. Not the word of truth as a bare theory, but as a surely appropriated foundation of faith and hope that stands fast, fast as a safeguard against error. It's the foundation of God, not the fiction of man. Objective, not merely subjective. The church is not built on people feeling good, feeling like they enjoy coming to church, and it makes me feel good when I get there, and I feel good when I leave. I felt good one day because a person who used to go here said to me, you know, when I, um, they hadn't been a Christian too long. She said, you know, when I leave there some Sunday mornings, I hear you preach. I am not happy, and I don't feel good when I leave. 
But I really appreciate you for that. I really love you for that. That's why I come back. Other times I do. And what she was saying is, sometimes the things that are said, if I'm reading God's word, cut you. They hurt you. They upset you. They challenge you. This isn't pleasant in some ways, but some people will never put up with that. I got criticized in one church because the man said, well, when I come there, you you upset my expectations. You upset my expectations. And I thought, thank you. That's what I thought. Thank you for saying that. But I, I know that can be extreme and there's no pride in that. But But the point is, the church is not about, the solid foundation of the church is not about the subjective feelings of the people that are there, the people that hear. It's about the truth of God, one way or the other. Uh, whether it's personal truth or doctrinal truth about issues, it's, that's what we ought to take, that's what ought to make us feel good. And so here's this picture of the Word of God coming in, and, and the prophets say it tastes like honey. And then when it gets in the belly and we try to digest it, it makes us bitter, because we have to realize that truth here, it hurts sometimes. Now then, here's what he says about this foundation. God has this seal. And that's that inscription that's on there. And the inscription then is a sign of authenticity and ownership. I was reading an article this week that they, when they dug up a whole bunch of stuff in Jerusalem around the temple area that came from the first temple period, the time of Solomon and later Solomon. And a lot of what they dug up were these seals that the officials used on different things. And so people back then, even they carried with them on, on their staff sometimes, they had their seal, their family crest, their personal seal, and they would stamp documents in wax and other things. They would make marks so everybody knew this was really coming from me. You know, They didn't have the Internet to verify everything. They couldn't go to a fact checker at the New York Times to find out what the real truth of things was. And so they, you know, I'm being facetious here. So we developed notaries. I used to be a notary public. Had a seal that that I had made, had to have made, that I actually put an imprint in paper. It actually imprinted the paper with my name and then, and signature and so forth on there. Now they just have a stamp, and because what we know today is you can't verify anything. You don't really know who anybody is, and you don't really know what's what. You just have to kind of hope it works out. That's about the way the world is. When people, when a whole society becomes dishonest and corrupt, there's just no way to verify anything. We'll have to live with that. But we can know that when the Lord says, this is mine, and this is what's true, we can know that. And so this, this inscription, this seal, the Lord knows who is His, it verifies this is the Lord's. Now there are a lot of people that want to be called a Christian or belong to the Lord. And the trouble with our society is, that's one thing, is there's a whole lot of people don't want anything to do with that. The Lord's certainly going to separate those out. To be called a Christian is an insult uh, to, to many people. And then others try to ride on the good will, will of true Christians, but it's also a sign of ownership. Ownership. I think this is another failure or weakness of American culture. And you all know what a patriot I am, but I think there is a, everything that's good has a weak side to it. There isn't one good thing in the world that doesn't have a weakness or a flaw or something that needs to be balanced out. Not anything. So we need to get rid of that naive thinking. But what allowed this country as an extension of Western civilization 
but especially this country, to be a place where the gospel could be preached coast to coast and around the world freely without interference was the belief that individual people stood in relationship to God and their government alone. It, it is individualism. Individualism even made our economic pro, uh, progress of it, uh, capable. The countries around the world who depend on government agencies to decide what gets made and who makes it and how much it costs inevitably fail. Countries like ours that are based on the other, you, you can go uh, make your stuff that you want to, what you think you should be made, and you can sell it for what you want and let it all work itself out. Individual countries prosper. There's weaknesses in that system, but that's the way to prosperity. We don't need to send more money to Africa. We need to send freedom to Africa. Or South America, wherever it is, we need to send freedom to them, free enterprise, if we want to get them out of poverty. And that's, when, when did China become prosperous? I remember when China was full of grinding poverty. They became prosperous when they did a head fake and said, we're going to allow our people to be free. Hong Kong showed them the way. Now they've since turned a corner on that and they want to control everything and you see, you'll see that this will turn into a disaster for them. Now the fault of that, the, the downside of all of that is individualism. Number one, that we find it hard to bond together in families and churches because we're all so individualistic. We all got to have our way. We all got to have our opinion. And so people get in Bible classes and other places and they fight over every little thing because my opinion's right and they never can come to any kind of working agreement together. And they certainly in America don't want to be owned by anybody. I've told you before my little tip with my son's grand, my daughter-in-law's grandmother in a good-natured way who is a, who is a citizen of the British Empire, lived and died a hundred years, citizen of the British Empire, and I told her one day, I wasn't talking to her, I talked to the table, well, I'd never go to England, bow before the queen and kiss her hand. Well, you'd have thought I'd, you know, she had a hissy fit. And I said, I'm sorry, Nana, I love you to death, and I love Britain, but I'm not kissing any any woman's ring, kissing any queen's ring. I'm, I'm an American. I'm, I'm sorry. I don't know what to do about it. I found out yesterday, I kind of knew this a little bit, found out yesterday with my daughter that she was able to trace some of our history back, not only to North Carolina and, and Scandinavia on, on my mother's side of the family. She traced it back to this, the uh, Massachusetts Bay Colony in the 1600s. They were there. She wanted to know whether we were the witches or the ones who were persecuting the witches. I said, probably, <laughs> probably both. Probably both because we ended up in North Carolina very soon after that. And then the whole record started because she found uh, one of my ancestors... My great, my great, great, great grandfather Henson was a Revolutionary War soldier. We've always been rebels, and he was applying for a pension late in life to get a pension because he was in the Revolutionary War. I've seen that rifle. I think that he carried on a gun anyway over my grandfather's mantle. And then there was relatives in the Civil War. Always been rebels because we're Americans. This is not good when it comes to many things with regard to the Lord. That I'm an individual and nobody's going to own me. Well, let me tell you something. If you're the kind of person that says nobody can tell me what to do, nobody can own me, you can't be a Christian. Because there's no shame in being a slave of the Lord or a servant of the Lord and serving Him and Him owning you. 
owning the right to tell you what to do with your life and what you think and how you should act. That's what glory to God is. That's what the, that's what the basis of this seal is. This firm foundation is the ownership by God of you. So don't take your individualism so far that you miss the point of being owned by Jesus Christ, you see. And so that's this inspiration. So here's the, here's the phrase that I love. The Lord knows who are his. We, we got to wrap this up. Too many stories. But I do, do want to mention a couple of things in the Bible that you're not aware of, perhaps. Go back to the story of Moses in the wilderness with the children of Israel. There were some people that wouldn't follow his leadership as a prophet of God. Dathan and Korah. And so, to shorten the story, but and so when Moses heard what they said, he fell on his face and he said to Korah and his company, Tomorrow morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will cause him to come near to him. That one whom he chooses will cause, he will cause to come near to him. And you know what happened the next morning? Those men were standing outside their tent confronting Moses and the ground opened up and swallowed them all and their families and closed up behind them. And the, and the people ran away screaming, afraid they were going to be destroyed. And there's more to the story than that. But the point of the people of Israel was, God was saying, I know who's mine, and Korah and David are not that man, Abijah. Moses is that man. Follow him. And then you have the statement of Jesus, I am the good shepherd. This is a whole different way of saying the same thing. I'm the good shepherd. And I know my sheep, and I am known by my own, as the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. So the Lord knows who are his, and Jesus says, I know my sheep. And whatever the world says, you can do it. So then, then the statement is, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now look at this same story here in Numbers, a little bit later. Number 16, verse 25, Then Moses rose and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him and spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart now from the tents of these wicked men. Touch nothing of theirs, lest you be consumed in all their sins. Before any of this happened, he said, You people need to get away from these men. Depart from iniquity. Don't touch anything that's theirs. Don't let them bribe you with their stuff to follow them. And some people backed away. The ones that didn't got swallowed up by the earth. There's sometimes we're just going to have to back away from certain things and people. They're dangerous. And Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. John, back to John 10 again. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. They're mine. They've departed. They've stopped following what they want to do. They're following me. You see. So in a great house are many, not only vessels of gold and silver, we've talked about this one, but we need to cleanse ourselves from the latter. And that's what he says here in this verse. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself. Salvation is personal. I just got finished saying we shouldn't overdo individualism, didn't I? And that's why there's a tension here about this. But salvation is personal. You can't be saved for anybody else, nor can anybody else save you. You have to, you have to respond to the Lord yourself. All those people today at Pentecost that Peter confronted with the gospel, they had to, they had to respond themselves. And I know that at the end of the chapter because it says, then they that gladly received his word were baptized in verse 42. 
There were many people who didn't receive his word. They heard it, but they didn't receive it, and they were not baptized. They were lost. They stayed lost. But also tells me this, in contrast to what denominations teach. You have a part in this matter. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Does that sound like God does it all? That you're used along for the ride. God does everything. It's all by grace and no, not by faith or your obedience. Doesn't sound like that to me. He says, if you name the name of the Lord, you depart from iniquity. You have to do something. You have a part in this process. You have to make a choice about what you're going to do and how you're going to act. And you have a part in your own salvation. Not that you can save yourself, but you play a part because he says that that uh, you repent and be baptized in Acts two thirty eight. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You have to do that. And at the end of that discussion in Acts chapter 2, he says, save yourselves from this crooked and perverse generation. You have a part to play. You want to be part of this great, on this great foundation? You want to be out there where it's weak? We're going to close this morning. Our time is far gone. I appreciate you listening. I've belabored you too much today. But I want you to think about that. You have a part to play, but you need to be sure that you're on the solid foundation of God because the Lord knows those who are his. Gary, let's sing one verse of this song, number 107. Is that okay with you? Or you want to, uh, We're going to sing one verse. What is it? Um, one, I'm, on the wrong, I'm on the wrong thing here. Sorry about that. Come unto me is the name of the song. I think it's 107. Uh, uh, we're going to sing this song now as a song of encouragement. If you need to repent of your sins, confess Jesus Christ, be baptized for the remission of your sins, you come down to the front right now. We can help you with that. If you need to come and have us pray with you about a problem, difficulty, or sin, you do that right now also. Let's stand and sing.